welcome to the CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. So today is CMIO News to Know for the week of July 21. And once again, I've just gone through some of the articles I've read this week, um, picked some of the highlights, things that just resonated with me as a CMIO. I'll go over what the articles are and the highlights and just kind of relate it back to this is why I thought it was important and this is what a up-and-coming physician informaticist may want to be thinking about when they're reading these kinds of articles. So the first one that caught my eye was the Fortune article by John Scully July 17th, and he wrote about why sensors are the future of healthcare tech. And I thought this was an interesting article. He talks about the prediction of two different things, the two trends that he's seeing happening in healthcare, one of which is a dramatic reduction in the hospital beds. And he says over the last 30 years, there's been a 23% reduction, and this occurred while the population grew over 30%. And his quote is here, I predict we will see the number of beds decrease even more dramatically over the next five years as a result of remote patient monitoring technology. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm on board with that. I think he may be a little too um, aggressive on the timetable there. So as a CMIO, of course, we do need to understand and be predicting and thinking about where are patients going to be in the future and what about remote patient monitoring. And we do have a, a program up and running in my system, and it's a small pilot. And like most of these remote patient monitoring pilots, uh, you're getting vital signs, you're getting um, a good medication reconciliation that's happening in the home. And I just don't know if that's enough to keep people at home. It may reduce readmissions, but if someone's really sick and they're coming into the hospital, they're going to come into the hospital and they're going to stay. And I believe the social determinants of health is driving a significant part of that hospitalization. And it's you know, not always homelessness or, or food insecurity. It may very well just be that, that, gee, the daughter who takes care of mom, well, she works and she's got other kids, to, her kids to take care of. And when mom's sick and requires around the clock care, well, who's going to do that? And there's no remote patient monitoring that's going to make that happen. And so I think the social components of healthcare are going to drive the the need for continued hospital beds. I do not see our hospitals shrinking their bed counts um, in a dramatic fashion. As a matter of fact, I see them continuing to pour money into infrastructure. And I think there will be heads in beds in the next five years. I just there may be a gradual decline. I just don't necessarily think the the rate at which John Scully is talking about here is is realistic. The uh, the second trend he talks about is are these he uh, calls them super users five percent of the population being responsible for half of the dollars spent on health care in this country and he mentions that there'll be more medical sensor-based applications and that apple will have a health subscription service that will connect the apple watch to physicians and we start talking about the internet of things and wearables 
and CMIOs do need to know about these devices. They probably scare me as much as they scare you in terms of who in the world is going to be monitoring all this data. And sure, eventually the artificial intelligence will be good enough so that we don't get in just all this noise that we actually get in something that's been filtered and we're only getting the, you know, the, the really out of bounds um, data. But even still, that's more data than I think we either want or could handle right now. I'm just not seeing my providers go, gee, I, I wish I could get more data on my patients in their homes so that I can manage their care better. I, I'm not getting that right now. But perhaps you are. Uh, let me know if, if I'm off base on this one. I don't believe that the subscription service in the next five years will significantly disrupt the model of healthcare that we have right now because I believe healthcare is still local. Now, there, you're going to say there are millennials who will go out there and use telehealth. Yes, absolutely. I believe that people who have low acuity needs absolutely will find a doctor on the internet and use it. I'm not seeing people doing significant specialty care through the internet right now because if I have a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, I am going to go to my primary care physician where I got the, the diagnosis and they're going to make a referral and if I had a primary care physician that was on the internet, they wouldn't know my local network. They might not know who is good and who is, you know, has a reputation for being less than good or we know they're going to retire in six months. And uh, I, I think there's uh, a big part of healthcare that remains local. If I ended up in the hospital with a septic joint, when I get out of the hospital, I'm going to be following up with a local physician. So these these 5% that are using half the dollars, I don't picture them going to their Apple Watch and then an Apple Health subscription service to help them manage their care. I could see that if I'm a fairly young, healthy individual with perhaps high cholesterol and that's the chronic condition I need managed, absolutely. I, there's no reason that has to be done locally and you don't have to have great, um, you, you can probably get better customer service and get done what you needed just as well through, through the internet um, than you would in person. So that's the, the story in Fortune from John Scully. I think it's interesting and good information in there for CMIOs to consider. Jumping to my next story, this one comes out of healthleadersmedia.com and it's talking about a, uh, a predictive model that was built by HCA Healthcare. So HCA is, is huge, of course, if, if you're not familiar with them. They're a 185 hospital for-profit system. They have 119 surgery centers. They're in 21 states in the United Kingdom. They do roughly $46 billion a year in revenues. So uh, they, here's the title, New Decision Support Tool Reduces Sepsis Mortality by 22.9%. That's July 10th, 2019. And the key takeaways here is that the algorithm developed at HCA Healthcare can detect sepsis about 18 hours earlier than the best clinicians. In one year, the algorithm reduced sepsis mortality by 22.9%, and since 2013, sepsis initiatives at HCA have saved about 7,800 lives. So when I was reading this, I, I picked up a couple of things in, in the back of my head that, that I thought were important. 
we've gone through this decision in our system about, well, should we buy or should we build our predictive algorithms? And HCA clearly said, well, we're going to build our own. And that makes sense. If you look at their size, they have the ability to hire and retain talent that's going to be you know, very expensive people that could be working on Wall Street using their predictive analytics skills, but instead are going to choose to go to healthcare, you're gonna to have to lure them away with some dollars. And the average health system probably should not be trying to do that and competing against Silicon tech startups for this kind of talent. So uh, HCA, well, they can, they can afford the data scientists. Um, they also have huge amounts of data that train their models. And that's very different than an average community hospital, for instance. They wouldn't have that data set. You need huge data sets in order to make these um, predictive algorithms and then be able to train them and test them and refine them. So HCA, well, with all those hospitals, they have huge amounts of data. Uh, they can also customize their models, which if you buy models, you really can't. You get what comes out of the box, but they likely need to customize their models for the different geographies they're in and the different demographics. They may very well use different uh, models in different areas. So um, I think it made a lot of sense for them to build rather than buy. And as I read this article, that was part of what was going through my head, and hopefully you continue to think about this. You should be thinking, if you're in a larger system, predictive analytics within our core set of competencies that we have to have. I believe every health system needs to be excelling at managing their data. I'm just not sure every health system has the resources and capabilities to do predictive analytics. The other thing that caught my eye on this is, hey, it's, it sounds like they implemented this thing and it went well. And that's, that's no easy feat. They claim to have doubled their effectiveness in sepsis survival. And I think that's a challenge. I have struggled getting predictive algorithms uh, taken up in, in the systems that I'm in. Um, some go easy and some don't, and there's a couple of reasons why. They, they have to get the providers to believe in the tool and to act on the data and they have to put data in front of the providers at the right time so that they are willing to see it and react to it and then have an effective intervention. And I love some of the things that they did. They had the alert go out to a team, a sepsis team that would respond. And that way they're guaranteed to get people who are interested in the alert and they are people who are going to know what to do with it. So I, that made a lot of sense. That was a great idea. They also claim to have a very low level of false positives. Um, they claim that uh, the false positive rate was half of what the care providers were doing. And that's so important with these models. I've seen patients who come to uh, our emergency department, white count 20,000 and heart rates 120 and they're diaphoretic and their blood pressure is 80 over 40. Um, and they've got a temperature of 103.5 Fahrenheit. So yeah, um, they're septic and the alert goes off and the doctor goes, no kidding. <laughs> I knew that one. I knew that one from across the room. And so that, um, th that just wasn't a useful alert for them. And then on the other side is also this, the trauma patient that comes in with that kind of similar picture. They've got the, the, the tachycardia and the diaphoresis and the, and the low blood pressure, but the trauma surgeon says they're not septic, they're, they're missing a limb. And that's the reason why they you know, are getting this sepsis alert firing at them. And it really aggravates them. And they're right. So we do have to think about these tools 
and to get them adopted well requires continuous maintenance and fine-tuning and I applaud HCA Healthcare for for getting this one in place. It sounds sounds like they did it well. So this next article is about interoperability. Um, it, I picked it up out of Healthcare IT News. Here's the uh, the title: Interface at Royal Papworth marks the first ever UK connection between Lorenzo and the Epic EMR systems. Lorenzo is one of their one of their EMRs. And, and we all, of course, know what Epic is. And so they, um, this was the first time this had been done in the UK, evidently. And um, I'll read you the, just a little piece of, of uh, one line here. It says, we collaboratively achieved a bi-directional interface in just seven months. And this had to do around lab tests. And so they're excited about that. And I, I look at that number, I'm like, what? Is anyone else like worried about that? Seven months. That's what it takes to do a bi-directional interface. And, and that's what it takes in our system as well. I'm not saying that they were, their time was any different, but this is not a good thing. If, if you're lucky enough to live in a city where everyone's on the same EMR, then, then you don't know what I'm talking about. You don't have these problems. The, the system I'm in now, and most of us are experiencing this, the uh, hospitals across the street from each other on two different EMRs, they cannot share information back and forth reliably unless an interface has been built. The community providers do not have the same EMR as the hospital, and it has an impact on provider efficiency. And it also impacts our nurses, too. So I, I see uh, this happens on our, one of our inpatient units. The doctors have the nurses go into a portal because the, uh, the local practice is not on our EMR, so they have a portal to get into their EMR and pull out the lab test. So the nurses are manually looking in the portal, then they manually type into our EMR the lab values that the doctors want. And then our doctors will manually type in what the nurse manually typed in. So uh, what's the possibility of error occurring in that workflow? But it's because we don't get an interface from that office. And they're, they're tough to build. They're, they're time-consuming. I'm sure, I mean, it took them seven months um, at this UK uh, hospital between the two facilities. I'm sure there's six figures tied to that in terms of the salaries that went into this. These things are expensive and difficult to do, and they have to be maintained. Um, I've seen one of our ambulatory providers, they, they have their staff checking the, the state HIE. They check the local hospital. Uh, they check the local labs and they'll check a certain provider's office that they work a lot with, all going into different portals. So their staff are going to each of these portals and then they cut and paste or print and scan in. And then they got this PDF that's then sitting there with probably some generic name on it. And then, you know, five years from now, would anyone be able to find that, that PDF? I, it'd be a lot of work on someone's part, certainly not searchable. Um, and there's, you know, the labs we're putting in, we're not getting discrete data, so it's not satisfying our quality metrics, and I can't trend it, and the data that could be buried in a note somewhere may very well, you know, miss it if it's in a huge stack of, of you know, scanned-in papers. So this is really not a good way to go. We have to improve this interoperability. As a CMIO, we really don't wave a magic wand and make this happen. This is done at a regulatory level, but we need to be appraised of these situations and watch what's going on with the ONC as they're discussing this interoperability rule 
and it does matter to us it matters to our providers it matters at the bedside that we cannot share data it's a big deal to me next article caught my eye it was in the british medical journal and here's the title prevalence severity and nature of preventable patient harm across medical care settings systematic review and meta-analysis and this came out july 17th and what they found after they studied seven they looked at 70 different studies with more than 330,000 patients, it was international. 28,000 of them had harm, 12% were severe, and drugs were the cause in 49%. And this one caught my eye because we've been talking about medication alerts in my, in my system. I'm sure you review them, discuss them periodically in your systems as well. The data out there about medication alerts, they vary between 10 per 100 orders to 30 per 100 orders. That's the data I tend to see tossed around. Our system is in that is in that range. Uh, I did see a report, a case report about one hospital. They have one alert per 100 medication orders. Phenomenal. And how they did it is, they made a decision to only alert the providers in the event that it was going to be a life-threatening situation. And so they use the example of hyperkalemia. That uh, yes, the the drug may cause hyperkalemia, but it may not develop for five or six doses. So we don't have to alert the provider up front. This is something we can alert the pharmacist, and then perhaps through protocols or something they're addressing it. I mentioned this to uh, a team of our provider informaticists, and they actually said they wanted the alert up front rather than having the pharmacist call them a couple of days in. They'd rather be dealing with it while it's in the moment. I thought that was a very interesting uh, and accurate perspective to say, I, yeah, I'd rather deal with this now than trying to think about, I get a phone call in the middle of something else, and now I, I have to think about what that was going on with that patient and what's the right alternatives to come up with. So if it's protocol and the pharmacist can just fix it, well, fantastic. I think that that's the best of all worlds. So we've been tossing that around in our system about who gets the alert. Is it the pharmacist? Is it the provider? We then got into a discussion about LeapFrog because we just took our LeapFrog survey and they require the alerts to hit the provider. I don't think that that's a fair assessment. I think we're a team sport now. If the alert hits the pharmacist or the nurse and the patient gets taken care of and it's through a protocol and the provider didn't get hit with the alert, well, you should still get credit for that. But well, they have their scoring methodology and so be it. I uh, mentioned this to the providers of, you know, if we, if we adjust our alerts, removing some, we could put leapfrog status in jeopardy and they absolutely do not care about leapfrog one bit, which is not surprising. But our executives do care about it to some degree. But they, you know, what the bottom line is when I presented this to the executive, they said, do what's right for the providers and the patient care and forget about the leapfrog survey we will deal with it if it becomes an issue. So I, I thought that was a really mature response um, and the providers were equally as mature in their response of, you know what, give us the alerts that are going to, to matter and save lives because yeah, we want those. Um, it, their response was not just this blanket, get rid of them all, they're all bad. They're not all bad, the providers recognize that. So I thought it was good discussion and this article just kind of brought that to light for me. I hope you're having those kind of discussions too. Um, huge amount of patient harm happening out there and it's happening from medications. So we do have to find that balance between alerting too much and not enough. 
I got one more story for you, and this one I picked up out of the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, Ideas and Opinions. This is July 16th, 2019, and there were three authors on here. The title is A Counterintuitive Tool for Connected Care. They start the their, their article off here with just a story about a patient who's kind of resistant and has been labeled a difficult patient, and then... Uh, the doctor comes in the room and, and doesn't seem to be making that connection, but they sit down, they pull the computer over, they go over the CAT scan together, and through the use of the EMR that they've made this connection. And I think, yes, yes, these authors are spot on. And they go on to say that there's a, you know different parts to the patient visit that involve the EMR where the provider has to get trained and excel at them. And... I'm just going to read through them. You, you probably, as CMIOs, will know these, but I encourage you. This is the kind of article that you want to hand out to every one of your provider informaticists that you work with, um, to all of your trainers. Uh, it's just one of those, yeah, no doubt, but the providers just don't get trained in this kind of stuff, so um, we wish everyone knew it. So the first step, of course, is to prepare. The clinician should be reviewing the medical record before meeting the patient every single time so that when you walk in the room, you know what's going on. Next one is to set up. Hopefully this has already been done for you, that the room is positioned so that when you're sitting down, the patient's sitting down, you both can view the computer monitor and be engaging around it. You then want to educate so the computer is being used as a tool that is uh, providing both you and the patient with information. This is a shared decision-making model, and you're empowering the patient, which then improves the interaction and improves satisfaction. You're charting together. That's their next one. They say the clinician, the patient, should draft the note together. And I do this. I, I find it very effective to tell the patient, hey, I want to make sure that I've captured everything that you just said, so um, I'm going to type this in or I'm going to dictate it in, and you just make sure I got it right. I've never had a patient uh, have a complaint about that, and they do feel that it's part of their visit and connected to their care, and that I am basically uh, rehashing this, the statements that they've made and confirming it for accuracy. Finally, they say that there's the review part, which is near the end of the encounter. The clinician's breaking out of that triangle, reestablishing a direct face-to-face, -face, and then together addressing final concerns, making sure the diagnosis treatment plan are clear and moving forward. Um, really important steps to effectively using the EMR. Um, they go on to talk about that this, this type of stuff is not what clinicians are usually trained to do. Here's the quote, collaborative computer use requires clinicians have both expertise and comfort in using the EMR. Even the most technologically savvy clinicians need targeted training to be effective. For example, best practices may include talking out loud while typing and being able to convince patients to participate in chart creation, skills that few clinicians have without training. I hope this is something that you are finding important as well and getting out there to your clinicians and to your trainers. This type of training I found has to be done one-on-one. -on -one. I have not found that sending out a tip sheet saying, hey, you should do this has been tremendously effective. Um, I have found that making some videos and engaging the providers with short two to three minute videos and around these types of topics has been effective. Um, this article just struck me as being one of those that as CMIOs, we have got to get the word out that the EMR is 
part of your visit. It's the tools that we use. It's as indispensable as the stethoscope. And so, well, those are my articles for uh, the week of July 21. I hope that you have found them to be useful in your journey as a CMIO. And um, that's uh, the show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman, and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me at my website, cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you would like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. I look forward to bringing you our next episode.